Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to The Napoleonicist. I am joined today by Gareth Glover, a deeply respected scholar of the Napoleonic era, who is famed for his work on the multi-volume Waterloo Archive, in addition to a wide range of books on the period, including The Forgotten War Against Napoleon, On the War in the Mediterranean, and Waterloo Myth and Reality. He has also recently published not one, but two books on the British 52nd foot during and after the Waterloo campaign. They are 52nd Light Infantry, Eyewitness Accounts of the Waterloo Campaign, and The Great Waterloo Controversy, the story of the 52nd Foot at History's Greatest Battle. And today's interview is going to focus on those. Gareth, it's great to have, great to have you back on The Napoleon Assist. How have you been? I'm fine, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. And thank you for the very kind words. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. It's, I'm only speaking the truth here. Before we tap into the Waterloo controversy itself, and I do want to emphasise for people, I know we did Waterloo almost to death back in June for Waterloo Remembered, so we're not going to rehash old ground in terms of a narrative of the battle that already exists on the back catalogue, and you can enjoy it just by scrolling back through previous episodes. But before we go into the controversy itself, I do want to look at the background of the 52nd foot very specifically, because their history goes back much further than Waterloo, and that's an important point that might be missed by some people not least in terms of interest for our listeners, uh, they have a lengthy period of service in the Peninsula War, don't they? Uh, yes, they do. Um, <clears throat> really, uh, the start of the actual regiment goes back to 1755, uh, when they actually started off as the 54th foot. Um, but within a year, they became the 52nd because two other regiments got closed down quite quickly. Um, they actually then served in the uh, War of American Independence, uh, a, a number of the great battles that were there, Lexington, Bunker Hill, etc., before disappearing off to India for 15 years. But where it really, I suppose, becomes in, of interest to Napoleonicists is when they return from India in 1798, um, and John Moore, Sir John Moore, becomes a colonel of the 2nd Battalion. 
uh, and it's through him, I think, really, that in 1803, the um, 52nd become part of the new light infantry training at Shorncliffe. Um, although the 2nd Battalion at that stage gets nicked away and actually turned into the 96th foot. Um, but because Sir John Moore got involved and he was um, such so famous in uh, Scotland as the son of Glasgow, um, they got so many Scotsmen actually volunteering to join the, the uh, regiment that they rapidly had a second battalion built up again. Um, obviously, they uh, served in many parts of the world, like many others, uh, in Sicily, Copenhagen, etc. But as you've mentioned, they had a major part in the, uh, the Peninsula War. And in fact, it's, it's virtually very difficult to actually find a conflict in which one of the battalions at least was not at, if not both of them, uh, from Corona, Fuentes de Nero, uh, the sieges of Carada, Rodrigo and um, Badajoz, Salamanca, Vitoria, and then through all the way through into France uh, to the final battle of Toulouse. They, they literally were involved in almost all of it. Yeah, it is quite remarkable actually when you track their deployment dates that one or other of the battalions is there pretty much the whole way. In fact, I think it's the first 52nd that is there. I need to check this, but I think it's the first 52nd that's there for almost the entirety of the conflict. I mean, they, they come out, I think, at the retreat to Corunia, so they're evacuated, but then they go back out in April or May time. So they have a, an incredibly long service. And as you say, being light infantry, they are often at the forefront of, of operations. Absolutely. Yeah, you're quite right. The the first battalion were there most of the time. Second battalion were there for a couple of years. Um, but then they obviously get involved in other campaigns later uh, in Belgium, for example, in 1814. What about specifically in 1815 then? What do they end up doing in the campaign? And I guess the other crucial question is, are there any signs that these guys were any good? Had they lost anything, uh, bearing in mind the attrition during the Peninsula War, when they were then redeployed in Belgium? Yeah, that's a good question. And I suppose I've got to answer the were they any good question before I actually say what they did in the campaign. Um, the second battalion, as I've already just mentioned, was already in Belgium, actually garrisoned at Ypres in uh, 1814. And they were there still in 1815 when everything started to happen. Uh, but they were down to 270 men. So there's very few in the battalion there. Um, and just regarding them, um, uh, General Henry Clinton, who, let's be honest, I think if anybody that commanded a regiment hated to actually be uh, paraded in front of Henry Clinton because he didn't um, sort of uh, spare anybody, should we say. And his comment on Colonel Gibbs, who actually commanded that regiment at the moment, was, uh, I'll give you just a quote, he is indebted to the system established more than any exertion of his moderate abilities. I think that says it all. <laughs> Doesn't mince um, his words then. No, exactly. And oh, that, that's quite light for uh, Henry Clinton, I have to say. Uh, in comparison, the 1st Battalion had obviously sailed back to the UK from uh, France in 1814, but they weren't there for long before they were shipped to uh, Ireland. And twice they actually tried to sail with a reinforcement of troops being sent out from Ireland to join the War of 1812 that was still continuing in America. Um, in fact, only by pure luck, the terrible storms at sea drove them back to Ireland twice. And it then turned out that they actually found on their return the second time orders to change their, their, their destination to Belgium instead, because obviously everything had changed with Napoleon coming back to the throne. 
Um, so they actually were transported out as quickly as possible and they arrived towards the end of uh, March and early April, they, they arrived into Belgium. Um, obviously, as I've already said, the two, the two battalions met up, but the second battalion was in such a poor state, as we've already mentioned, um, that it was, a, it was agreed that there would be a transfer of what was actually good in the second battalion. And obviously, uh, the first battalion took the opportunity to transfer a few that weren't so good in theirs uh, before the second battalion made its way back home. Uh, the strange thing about that transfer is that obviously it was meant to increase the numbers available to the 1st Battalion, but in fact, it actually reduced it by 80 men uh, with a very strange uh, number of sergeants, up to 26 sergeants actually transferring into the 2nd Battalion and going home when they'd been quite fit and able to actually go to America, or at least deemed to be. So it, it is a strange situation. but. The, uh, the battalion then received reinforcements from England over the next month or so and got to just over a thousand men before the campaign. But of these troops, as you can see, uh, many had actually come, uh, nearly 300 had come from the second battalion. Uh, others had actually retired in 1814 and a number of militiamen had come in. Plus we know that there was these further militiamen who had come across and actually boosted the uh, numbers of the battalion before the battle. So it's impossible to be exact with numbers, but it's well over 50% of the troops there were either completely untried from this battalion or had actually only seen action at the disaster of Bergen op Zoom, which, which was not particularly a great way of starting for them. Uh, and regarding the campaign itself, um, really the 52nd were in the background for most of the campaign. Um, during this 16th and 17th, with his, as your listeners will know, is the, the Battle of Catrabra and the retreat to Waterloo, they literally just spent the entire time marching uh, to catch up with the army. And in fact, they spent over 30 hours on the road uh, with very little rest and very little food getting to Waterloo in time for the battle. Uh, the only thing you can say is on the 17th, that their brigade under General Adam actually protected the convoys of both wounded, because all the Dutch wounded were actually in Nivelle uh, from the Battle of Catrabras, and a mass of stores, because there were literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, wagons uh, stacked up at Nivelle, and they saw the majority of those safely back to Waterloo, although over 100 wagons were captured by French cavalry on the way back. Can I just take it back to what you were saying about the sergeants who were yes. sent back? Is there any indication that some of those might have been from the Santarem contingent, which for listeners who aren't familiar with, with all of this, there was a, a, a camp, if you like, during the Peninsula War at Santarem, which was meant to be a, a convalescent hotspot, but it also became um, a kind of a go-to place for people who couldn't be bothered with frontline duties and just wanted to rest up and, and have easy duties by um, hanging around Santarem, either kind of pretending to be doing hospital duties or um, claiming convalescence. Is there a sense that some of those sergeants, because these people were quite unpopular when they uh, turned up at the end of the Peninsula War, having not um, shared the, the dangers of campaign, expecting sergeants paying, expecting, you know, the kind of respect that goes with the rank. Um, is there any sense that they were perhaps from that contingent? And so it was an opportunity to just kind of kick them out of the unit? No, actually, um... In this case, there's not much evidence of that. Uh, looking back in the service records over the period uh, 
most of them were with the battalion uh, for most of the time. I think my feeling is, and there needs to be more research on this, but there is definitely an air within the army in 1814 of a desperate need to get home. They've had enough of fighting. War has had it. And many of the, uh, those who wrote memoirs of the wars actually finished their service in 1814 um, because they, they, their time is up and they take the opportunity to get out. Um, the 52nd didn't have a lot of time to do that because they got turned around to actually get sent out to America. And I think this war weariness um manifested itself out in in Fran in belgium sorry when they actually met these two battalions because it seems very strange that all of these sergeants were were uh well able to sail to america or at least deemed to so by the by the army um but were they allowed to actually uh go back to england at a time when surely um you know all these experienced sergeants were desperately needed in the campaign that was about to be fought it's a very odd one, isn't it? Um, you almost wonder if the, as you say, the time was up or whether they were just, their time was going to be up. And so they were keen to take an opportunity to not take an unnecessary risk. Because the, the example that people might be familiar with if they know the period is Cooper, who um, ends up going out to North America with his unit. But he spends the night before the Battle of New Orleans trying to secure his discharge, um, going around various, um, initially his battalion commander, and, and then I think he tries to actually find Pakenham um, and secure his discharge because he doesn't want to take the risk. So perhaps it's, as you say, perhaps it's to do with that. Yeah, I, I think, funny enough, um, I'm not a great fan of Sharp at Waterloo, funny enough, is probably not one of the best of Bernard Cornwell's books, but I think it, this is actually a theme that Bernard Cornwell has actually picked up on, because in that novel, he really does describe how the troops are there, almost, they don't want to be there though. I mean, you know, they, they've seen too much fighting and too much death. Um, and for the majority of them, it's one battle too much. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there is some honesty in that. I think, you know, I mean, I, you can imagine, perhaps, I mean, trying to do something similar analogy. Um, you know, if somebody had actually finished fighting the Second World War and perhaps say the, the Korean War had started three weeks later and they were shipped off to that, you could imagine how many a, a soldier would have actually felt about that. Yeah, completely. I mean, it comes back to the whole thing of what was Napoleon thinking, doesn't it, um, in 1815, which is a discussion for another day. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the the war weariness is is perhaps something that we don't necessarily think of because we kind of see, although eighteen fifteen is kind of uh, an unnecessary, if you like, offshoot, we kind of see it as being part of the wider war rather than a separate conflict, which in effect it was. You know, the the war was packed up and dealt with in eighteen fourteen. Only Napoleon decided it wasn't. Yeah, I think you know we're sometimes guilty uh, as military historians of actually forgetting that soldiers are actually human beings mm. and they're not just automatons that just go into battle and fight another battle without even thinking. Definitely, I definitely agree with that. Let's look at the, the controversy and perhaps start with the basics because this has been 200 years in the making. So what is the controversy 
surrounding the 52nd and other units um, at Waterloo. Okay, if, uh, let's keep it relatively basic in this stage. Um, the, the major issue is the defeat of the uh, French Imperial Guard, uh, the final attack at the Battle of Waterloo, and the question is who actually defeated them? Um, the first foot guards uh, claim it and also got the credit for it. Uh, the 52nd claim it, didn't get the actual recognition for it. Um, and then others obviously get involved as well, like the cavalry of Vivian and Vandeleur, who actually claim to have actually then destroyed French morale after that initial defeat by sort of uh, sweeping across the field and, and ending any form of uh, last resistance. Um, so it's that, it's that controversy that's been there in the background throughout. All I will say to you, uh, and it's something we'll come up with probably a bit later in this, um, but that controversy has not been there for the full 200 years, as perhaps has been claimed by some. So other authors have had a pop at this, haven't they? Um, some have made some pretty big claims regarding the controversy. There are claims of conspiracy theories. Um, I know the, the talk of the 52nd has been going back a little while. A few years ago, I picked up a lovely little pamphlet by Nigel Sales um, talking about, I think he called it Wellington's Waterloo secret. Um, so that there's been talk about this, but what's been said? Um, well, the first thing I will say is, as a, as a historian, I think the, the most important thing I can do is to analyse any claims or any evidence that comes forward to actually see what is actually the truth in these situations in a dispassionate way. Um, and as an ex-Navy man, I always make this joke of is I have no personal sort of axe to grind about any regiment at all. I don't care who actually gets the laurels as long as it's the right people, because actually, as I said, as a naval man, I don't care about, I don't have those sort of regimental sort of loyalties, should we say. Um, but obviously there's, there are a lot of claims being made. And as you said, a, a number of conspiracy theories have grown. Um, and the biggest problem I have with conspiracy theories is that um, they generally work on innuendo more than anything else. And the greatest claim is always that something that is missing in the files, the papers that are missing, are not just missing, but have actually been destroyed on purpose to hide a, a, something that's nefarious has gone on. Um, now, as any historian, although I'm sure you've had this situation yourself, Zach, when you go through the files, quite often that really important bit of paper you want is just unfortunately not the one that's actually there. And you have to try and piece the evidence together from lots of other different sources to get that, to understand what that bit of information probably said. Absolutely. Yeah, and, well, that's a, a common complaint with me and, and even the Wellington papers, which are remarkably comprehensive. I mean, there's 100,000 bits of paper there, but <laughs> about two or three bits of paper that I really want are just not there. They ended up in the bottom of the Tagus. Exactly. And therefore, I, I do have a general problem with a lot of these conspiracy theories because to just claim them on the back of things like, um, say, missing paperwork, etc., stating that that's, you know, proof of nefarious dealings is very, very difficult to actually 
believe, and to be honest, I have now investigated every single claim in great detail, looking at it in a very balanced way as to whether there is any evidence to back those claims up or not. Um, and all I can say to you is that I have failed, and I actually have put this into a, a, a complete appendix in the, in the book, uh, because it's important for people to know that, I have found not a shred of evidence to actually back up one of the claims. What's the claim regarding Wellington? Because there is, is it suggestion that he's involved in the cover-up or, I mean... It... Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, you can almost say, what is Wellington not blamed for? Uh, Wellington is blamed for hiding the fact that the 52nd uh, went, were involved in this at all because uh, supposedly uh, he was uh, he hadn't ordered the movement, so therefore uh, he was not wanting to give them credit for actually having any claim to it. There is a claim that he actually um, wanted the guards to have the actual, uh, the sort of all of the laurels for doing the, uh, for do, completing this act. Um, although it's never been proven as to, or it's shown as to why Wellington particularly had an interest with the guards, because he wasn't a guardsman himself. Um, and it then goes into further detail of actually trying to prove, and it's not dissimilar to the big arguments that go on with Cy the Cyborn case as well, um, where Wellington is seen as this overarching sort of uh, evil uh, tyrant who actually is... Uh, controlling everything regarding the army to ensure that only his version of everything comes out and that anything that is, goes against it is actually the, their careers are destroyed and the evidence is destroyed and everything else. Uh, so that it, it goes right to the top of, of and, and every conceivable claim has been made regarding him on this subject. And as I said, I go into it not as a lover of Wellington or a lover of the 52nd or a lover of the guards, but when you look at this, the evidence in the cold light of day, I just can't make them stand up. You've touched on some of this already, but with a question that is well discussed, perhaps putting the, the conspiracy theories to one side mm -hmm. for a moment, how have you been able to bring anything new to the subject of the controversy? Because as we kind of discussed during Waterloo Remembered, this is a battle that has been picked over endlessly from every conceivable angle. And it's quite hard to take a genuinely fresh approach with it. Uh, you're right. Um, and if I'm honest, uh, the whole um, project on this occasion started with a good friend of mine, with Nick Haynes, who actually brought to my attention uh, the fact that a diary, uh, in fact, that of Lieutenant Charles Holman, was sitting in the Winchester Museum in their sort of display cabinets. And lo and behold, it has never actually been used, as far as I can see, by anybody in writing any history of the 52nd in its entire 200 years of writing about it since Waterloo. Um, and what's more important is it's the only diary that is actually written contemporaneously by a 52nd man. Um, oh, wow. Almost all the evidence we have from the 52nd was written I think people like Gawler in the 1830s, uh, Colborne was writing in the 1830s, 40s and 50s, 
and Leake didn't actually write his until the 1860s, although he says he has a few, a few more small notes to actually work off. But to be perfectly, none, none of them wrote until much, much later. So it is very important because he was writing literally day after day and literally the, you know, the morning after Waterloo, he's writing what he remembers of, the, of what happened that day. So it's, it's of vital importance. And other letters, um, John Hart's letters in the National Army Museum and other places, we, we found odd, I found odd sources all over the place um, and obviously went through the uh, information again uh, that has already been published because it's amazing and if it's amazing how often things are misread uh, people read what they uh, see in front of them but they then put it into the context of what they already understand of the battle rather than saying hang on a minute that doesn't actually tally with what we think we know absolutely i mean it's a bit like napier effect and the peninsula war isn't it everything written after well not quite everything but certainly there is an issue with sources that come out after um, Napier's history of the Peninsula War was published and oh, the way it to conform to a lot of what Napier had written. Um, so, you know, this whole thing about later sources is really interesting because, of course, you've got that Chinese whispers effect, haven't you? And by that point, you've got different people with uh, a voice in, in the, the, the greater game, if you will, of trying to, to argue their unit's reputation. Yes, uh, you've got to look at a lot of things then as, as to um, the whole question of why are they writing it? Um, what are they actually trying to achieve by it? And it's either they're looking, as you said, looking after the regiment, defending their honour, should we say, or it's maybe just actually wanting to sell lots of books because this is a period when these war memoirs became good business. Um, and you can see stories being borrowed by other people so they read it in one you know sort of one memoir and lo and behold it turns up in their memoir, memoir uh, as if they were there as well and actually half the time they probably would. I love this because this is kind of the bread and butter work that goes into being a historian that a lot of people don't kind of necessarily appreciate when they're, they're reading a book but I, I think we've probably kept people on Tenderhooks long enough. So let me ask the question that all our listeners are dying to know. What's the truth here? Who did defeat the Imperial Guard? Oh, there you go, the million dollar question in one. Um, in brief detail, if I want to just say it, the Allies. <laughs> That's a great answer. Um, if you want a little bit more detail, I'm sure, sure you do. Um, the the evidence is stacking up really strongly for there to have been a very fragmentary attack uh, by the guard that it came across in different sections, not as one lump. Uh, as some have claimed, uh, Leek, for example, actually claims that 10,000 men came across in this huge long column. Uh, there is absolutely no evidence for that at all. Uh, and it's very inconceivable to see one battalion of 1,000 men uh, chasing 10,000 men off, uh, uh, and very experienced men, should we say, at, at war, uh, off the battlefield. Uh, Did the not even have 10,000 of the guard uh, to commit at that stage? No, uh, no. I mean, the, the attacks in total probably totaled around five to 6,000 in total. Uh, no more than that actually went forward. Uh, and in fact, it went forward, it, it appears very strongly now, in three separate attacks as such. 
the first attack was made by the battalions of the chasseurs, uh, which arrived on the Allied uh, ridge in the area of the first foot guards. And the first foot guards are largely the, the people who actually defeat this attack and drive it back down the hill and actually charge down the hill after them. Now, if you know the layout of Waterloo slightly, where the mound is now, there is a watershed that runs out from there towards uh, um, La Belle Alliance. And basically the land falls away either side, either down towards Hougamont or down towards uh, La, La Haye Saint. And therefore the guards couldn't see what was happening to their left, just just to their left, because of course that's the other side of the ridge that's there. And a second attack goes in over there, which is actually uh, two battalions of grenadiers of the guard. And a third one is actually sent as a reserve to those. That is actually uh, attacked eventually by a number of different units. Uh, a lot of the sort of uh, German units in that area uh, are driven back by them. Um, and even uh, sort of Halkett's Brigade, etc., start sort of struggling in that area. Um, but eventually we get the Dutch Belgians arriving under Chasse and they actually uh, help to finally push them back, uh, back down the slope on that side. But that is obviously happening just after the first attack for the first guards and they're totally unaware of it because it's the other side of the crest. And actually as the guards go back down the, the hill, there are three battalions not too far off uh, the orchard of Hougamont who actually appear to have moved forward to support this initial attack that they can see as it's breaking down. And this attack forces the guards to retreat rather quickly. I mean, many guardsmen actually say they you know, march back or all the rest of it, but there's a few that admit it, they actually ran back because they were completely disorganized, back to the crest to reorganize. And at this stage, it appears, this is when the 52nd, and I would say the rest of Adam's brigade actually get involved in swinging onto the flank of this third column, uh, which may not have intended of actually attacking, but, uh, it, and going over the ridge, but certainly went forward to support the failure of the first attack and would have looked like a, a third attack. It's very difficult to know what their intention would have been if they had made, been able to get go forward. But certainly, it's that's the situation as I can see it, with three separate attacks happening there. And then, of course, Vivian and Vandeleur's cavalry getting involved in actually, once they're broken, in actually chasing the, the, the Imperial Guard back across the actual uh, valley floor and then attacking uh, the remnants of their army on the opposite ridge. This movement by the 52nd and other units, mm. how risky was that as a manoeuvre? Um, well, actually, before we talk about that, we should talk mm. about Wellington's involvement, first of all. Um, people like to say, you know, Wellington is there and going, now, Maitland, now is your time, and so on. How involved is Wellington in this phase of the battle? Well, that's a good question. And funny enough, uh, those officers in the 52nd, uh, including Colborne, at times indicate that um, that it was done without his orders. And certainly Adam accepts that because General Adam, who commanded the brigade, sees the movement going off and actually asks Colborne what he's doing. He explains very quickly and lets him go on. However, 
Colborne actually also in a couple of his letters, which uh, there are a number of letters by Colborne, and you have to sort of um, you have to read all of Colborne's letters to get an understanding of what he actually means half the time because he does change his views a few times. Um, but he does admit that it, while he's doing this, an actual messenger arrives from Wellington ordering exactly what he has done. So Wellington is there. We know he's close by. He's, we know that in fact the, uh, the second and third 95th says with them in fact so he's very close by um and he obviously sees the movement he therefore orders it and there is obviously some confusion because obviously colborne is saying i did it before he told me to do it but then he then admits that an order very quickly afterwards arrives telling him to do it and you can understand how wellington was involved and probably thought that the movement actually occurred because of his order mm. I mean, it's very typical of the bloke, isn't it? I mean, Wellington doesn't miss an opportunity where he sees one. Um, the other thing that strikes me about this is that you've still got the battle going on at Hougamore. So to, to advance like this, how dangerous was that? Was this something that could have gone badly wrong? Or was, was the fighting kind of petering out at Hougamore by this point? Um, the fighting around Hougamore had largely um, petered out, although it was still quite hard in the orchard area particularly. Um, I mean, part of this brigade, um, to Platt's sort of KGL brigade, were actually sent down to the point where the second KGL were even sent into the orchard to back up the Scots Guards because they were in danger of being driven out completely. I'm sure there's not a Scots Guardsman who would like me saying that, but the evidence is that they, they had to send another German regiment in to help them to hold on to the, the orchard. And this was towards just before this period. So, um, you know, it's, there has been fighting still there, but certainly the fighting for the building has really come to an end. Um, the French had, I think, exhausted themselves on that situation. But clearly other troops had been ordered to back up the guards' attacks. So some of Real's men had actually started coming forward. And therefore, and particularly with all the smoke, because that's one of the things you've got to bear in mind, this, the, the, it was like a fog by this stage with the amount of uh, smoke that was around that with limited visibility um, when they initially set off having defeated the guard across uh, the base of the allied ridge first of all uh, to clear anything else away from there um, there clearly is a concern for their right wing and in fact colborne is mentioned quite a few times of constantly riding to his right to check that there's not going to be a, a, a cavalry charge on his flank, etc., which would have been led to disaster. Um, but clearly, obviously, as the smoke clears a bit and as they move forward, and in fact, as they move forward across the, uh, the valley, uh, Wellington is definitely behind them, and so is Adam, uh, can see that the French are actually uh, not looking to fight, uh, to at least to advance anymore, uh, and are looking very vulnerable orders a general advance, which is obviously what turns the tide. But clearly in the initial minutes of this thing, this was actually quite a, a dangerous move to make. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's always the thing that struck me about this, that, you know, one, a couple of, of strong units, perhaps a, a brigade of cavalry, could have turned this into an absolute mess for, for both sides, in fact, and could have perhaps led to a stabilisation on, on the French side. Oh, conceivably. I mean, obviously, Wellington had done a couple of things which had, would have helped a bit. I mean, obviously, 
the regiment is not advancing in uh, too deep line, it's actually in four deep line. Um, unless you want to go into that, that's another subject as to how that was formed, because there's even arguments within the regiment of how it was formed. Um, uh, and obviously, to the right of the 52nd, the 71st would actually be coming up on that wing as fast as possible to actually uh, to help protect them. And at the same time, all the other generals in the area, so for Clinton, Clinton actually rode off to the, the German brigade and actually um, ordered forward um, all of these sort of German um, militia battalions he had. Uh, they started moving forward. Unfortunately, only the Osnabrück went forward because having given it to, uh, the order to another officer to go on and mention it to the other battalions, he actually then gets killed. So the others don't move. But and also to Platt's uh, troops are also ordered to start moving. Um, so there is a, a general sort of uh, movement to try and ensure that it is not just that brigade is going forward. And I would say it's not just the brigade because we've talked about the 52nd, but clearly the two, uh, the, the troops from the 95th that were with them from the two different battalions that were there and the 71st were clearly going to be moving with them anyway and, and did. I'm picking this must have been an absolutely massive challenge. Um, so it's a fair play to you. Uh, and it, it are you conscious that you know it takes a very bold individual to kind of claim that they finally got to the bottom of things? Um, I mean, there, there are books that come out occasionally that proclaim to have found the truth of a historical, um, uh, you know, a thorny issue in history. Were you kind of wary of that, and did you kind of do anything differently when you were putting this one together compared to your um, other books? I think, first of all you're always wary of making a title like that and, and if I'm honest part of that title is there because of the publishers rather than me because um, I'm always a little bit less uh, I'm a little more cautious should we say about making such claims but you know the publishers love to have a title um, but I would stand by it in most senses because um, if you actually look at the histories of the Battle of Waterloo um, up until let's say give it a date of about 1990 they were largely based on around maybe no more than a hundred, if if a hundred, uh, published memoirs and documents around the place that people were using regularly. And actually, when you start looking at it by regiment, that actually comes down to a very small number of accounts that you're using. Um, and it's not just down to me, but a number of historians have actually been involved in getting much more of this stuff published. And we're now talking around having a around uh, including sort of from the allies with the German troops and everybody else as well and the Dutch Belgians and that close on to a thousand uh, pieces of evidence now from different memoirs and letters and all the rest of it now it's a huge increase in our understanding um, and it's made us question many things but what it has also allowed us to do is to actually get to a point of saying well actually now um, if I look at, uh, as in this case, for example, I have evidence from the French. I have uh, quite a bit of evidence from the French, quite a lot of evidence from the guards, from the other troops nearby, from all of the troops that were in uh, Adam's brigade and in fact in Clinton's uh, division, etc. So huge amounts of evidence now. And by able to piece all that together and coming up with a narrative that works within all that you've got there uh, as much as possible, um, 
I have a lot of confidence that we're on the right road to the truth. Now, that's never to say never regarding new material being found out that actually amends bits of it. But there, the, any new material we find yet, and there is more to be found yet, but without any de uh, doubt about it, um, it's going to have to be very substantial and extremely convincing to actually change my opinion of where we've got to now dramatically. It's more likely to be finesse rather than dramatic uh, because everything is pointing in this direction. And even I, I had an attempt at this five years ago, and actually this is a further movement from that. And in fact, somebody read that book five years ago. This has moved on dramatically since then with a lot of new understanding that even I have discovered in those five years. And this is getting closer, I think, to the truth, but I would never as a historian ever say, this is it forever. Somebody can't, can't find anything else out. But obviously as more and more comes out, it's gonna be more and more difficult to actually, to change these views now. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny that you pick up on the fact that things have changed over the last five years. Because I was going to ask, is this something that we've only been able to get to the bottom of because of a renewed interest in the wake of the bicentenary? I don't think it's just a bicentenary. I mean, I, I, I don't claim all of credit myself by any means, because there's other people like John Franklin and you've got um, Erwin Mulewick for the Dutch Belgians and everything else, uh, and uh, Andrew Field for the French. But there wasn't anybody in 2000, when I decided to start looking at the evidence that was sitting in uh, the archives not coming out, there's nobody else doing it anymore. I mean, there's lots of historians have brought out the odd bit of stuff from the archives and they've published one or two, and then they've gone into more historical works in general. Um, I've always wanted, um, my main bit is to actually ransack the archives and get this stuff published so that more people see it. Because it's amazing how many don't go to the archives, they use this, the published stuff, and that's all they use. Um, and that is a criticism I have of some historians and some books I've read is that the only thing they've got in there is the stuff that is previously published. There is an absolute wealth of stuff out there. I have, if even at the moment now, I have enough stuff already sitting in my office here that will take me 20 years of publishing to get published and there's more out there I haven't even touched and I know there is, there's masses more. Um, so I've started that in 2000, I started by going to the Cyborn letters and actually thinking why have we not got any knowledge of what's in the rest of the Cyborn letters and they started me on lots of different subjects. Uh, so and it's it started me asking more questions and every time I get another memoir, I know some people would probably think, oh, every memoir, they're all the same. They say the same thing. They don't. Every single one of them has a new nugget of valuable information that makes me think again on something. Absolutely. I mean, this is a, a jigsaw that we're trying to piece together here. Um, and, and it's a piece of work that's never going to be completely done. Um, so, uh, I mean, you say that you don't take the whole credit, but I think you deserve a huge, you know, the lion's share of the credit because Waterloo Archive is on what, 12 volumes now? It's a huge uh, piece yep. of work. 12 and 13 and 14 are already ready to go to the actual publishers. I mean, it is just phenomenal. I also want to ask about another interesting discovery. This one isn't related to the 52nd, but let's, let's just di digress for a moment. You uncovered that there wasn't one, but two breakings at Hougamon, didn't you? 
Yeah, this, well, this actually came out of that very first publication of the Cyborg Letters in 2000, etc., uh, 2004. Um, there were a number of things that immediately came to mind. And one, uh, one of them was I started reading in there a number of accounts that made it relatively clear that um, the that, it, that, that they couldn't just be one breaking into Hugomot. Um, and when I started reading some of these Dutch-Belgian accounts, which made it clear that they, they were claiming a, a break-in through the west door, a uh, small door on the west side there, uh, and that was into the, what we call the southern uh, sort of square of buildings, rather than the northern square of buildings, which were, is famous for the, uh, the, the, the guards sort of um, holding back the French that time when they broke in. Um, and having got inklings of it i then started rereading all the previous evidence and a perfect example of that is matthew clay's account where he actually is famously uh you know sort of states the fact that he saves the life of a drummer boy um but his account for two centuries has been used as he saved the drummer boy at the breaking in the gates in the north wall um, but that clearly was not true because it was actually after he had actually been in the chateau which he was in the chateau two three hours later when he was burning down and cut he came out of the chateau and actually says he went into the the, the southern courtyard he came out of the southern courtyard and found the the french in there so he was clearly talking about different incidents but it's just amazing how people have actually just made the evidence that, that these people have given, they've made it fit, again, the established view of the battle that has been agreed in whenever it was, in 1815, 1816 or whatever, it was published, and everything else since then has been, oh yes, well, he must have meant that, He's, you know, and they've just pigeonholed it into that situation, instead of looking at really at the evidence and saying, that's not what he actually said. And that's, I think, the biggest thing I've been hopefully doing and making other people do as well. And, and that is a lot of it now. I mean, a lot of people are coming up with different sort of uh, evidence for different things. Um, I would say I have, I, I have said there is one claim, one Nassau man actually claims a third break-in. Uh, and Clay actually says that the gates wouldn't burst open by a, uh, a shell, uh, sorry, a, a, a cannonball, but the, nobody came in before they shut them again. So I can't claim, claim that as a break-in. But I would say now this does seem to be a bit of a competition as to how many break-ins you can actually claim for Hougamont. And I've actually seen claims of four, five, and six from other historians in the recent past. Uh, but I would have to say, so far, on all of them, including my potential third break-in, the evidence is very flimsy indeed. It's based on individuals' accounts and very, very vague accounts of that. Um, so to me at the moment, two is a definite. Anything more than that is still to be decided. I really like this because we're, we're kind of, I mean, hopefully there are aspiring historians listening to this, perhaps students at university, and hopefully they will take something away from this, which is that when you're doing research, go back to the original source material. Don't just rely on what other people have quoted, because that whole kind of Chinese whispers effect, I think, is really part of the issue that we're dealing with here. Something. Oh, absolutely. Sorry, carry on. 
No, sorry, I was only going to just confirm what you said. I mean, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, quite often a, a renowned historian will say something and then too often uh, historians following on will actually blindly follow them. Um, and I mean, even even with my own work, nobody should be blindly following what I say. Uh, at the end of the day, they need to actually go further and question it and sort of check me and, and make sure that I haven't made a mistake or there isn't new evidence that changes things. You know, I don't care who that is. Something that you particularly highlighted with your work is, as we kind of discussed, discrepancies, mm -hmm. but also kind of discrepancies between different sources over who was present at the battle. For folks who aren't part of the Waterloo Association, they won't know that you've done quite a few articles in the association's journal, the Waterloo Journal, mm -hmm. that picks up on this kind of thing. So in terms of the casualties, who was present, what kind of impact did the battle really have on the battalion itself after Waterloo? Oh, after Waterloo. Um, it's the first thing to say is, I mean, the casualties figures that were stated at the time of 199 killed and wounded. Um, I found that they're slightly wrong. Um, it's actually the best figure I can come up with is 210 killed and wounded, which is not massively different. Um, but it's clear that some of the historians, uh, Cyborn's history, for example, it's quite clear that his method of calculating the uh, casualties is about the 10% understated uh, throughout. Um, so that is a problem in a sense, because obviously he's a major source for things like this. And you then find out that, in fact, it's a, there's a problem with that. Um, it's, 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 it's very difficult. I mean, in every sense of the word, it's um, you're always looking to see what has happened in reality rather than what is claimed. And you can only go back to the uh, official uh, paperwork, et cetera, to see who was who was there, who was wounded, who was killed. I mean, one, you have mentioned um, that I've done some stuff for the Waterloo Association, but I, uh, the podcast is actually freely available to anybody, actually, on the Waterloo Association podcast uh, feed now. They, um, I have actually explained that virtually every account of what the 52nd did, for example, has got the wrong officers attached to the wrong companies. And it then means that people start making assumptions about either the formations they were in or how they actually fought and where the actual casualties were formed and how they were formed completely wrongly because they've got people allocated to the wrong places. And this is, as I said, it's not something to go into now. It's just slightly too complicated to go into now. But, you know, if anybody wants to understand why even reading the, the muster lists at Q and actually saying, oh, such and such was in number five company, that does not mean he was actually under the officer you think he would be if you read the records. Uh, because the records are set up in a completely different way to how they actually fought at battle. Um, but so, so there's all these different things that uh, you know affect the whole thing. Let me ask a, a slightly self-indulgent question here. Did you come to any conclusions on discipline in the army during this period? Uh, I know we're asking that one, seeing as you're doing a major work on the subject. As you will know yourself, I mean, the first thing you have to say is that uh, Wellington's army is supposedly infamous for every, every man was a rogue, uh, but they were under uh, 
severe restrictions and uh, heavily policed and therefore were kept from being bad boys, should we say. Um, that was the situation towards the end of the uh, Peninsula War. Uh, but we're now in 1815 and things have changed dramatically. Uh, certainly the discipline is not the same in 1815 in any way, shape or form. The first reasons, well, half the troops are there were in the peninsula, if not more than half the troops. Um, they were less aware of Wellington's strict rules, etc. Um, he hadn't had time to really impose himself again in this campaign before everything started off. Um, and he had no formed core to police things in 1815. It was only set up after the Battle of Waterloo. They hadn't had time to set it up. Um, the campaign itself led to lots of rapid um, uh, sort of marches. The commissary completely failed. Uh, so soldiers were left going hungry. And it is quite clear that officers turned a blind eye on numerous occasions uh, regarding pillaging, etc. Um, there is also, and I'm sure this is part of the work that you're going to be doing, Zach, in a much bigger detail as part of your uh, PhD, um, that there is throughout the period uh, a very obvious fact that officers are often, uh, how can I put this, they're, they're actually reluctant to go down the official court-martial route. Yeah, if at all possibly, it. yeah, if at all possibly, they'll actually try to deal with it internally, uh, either with a regimental court-martial or even not a court-martial. They'll just order some sort of punishment or without that. Um, avoiding, basically, it going in the official paperwork that gets to the commander-in-chief at some stage. Yeah, um, that is definitely something that it comes out in this period. I mean, it, I've seen it in the 1815 and I know you've been working on it throughout the whole of the Peninsula War as well. And it's definitely something that comes out. But as, as a final comment on the 52nd in the uh, 1815 campaign, uh, it is painfully obvious that they did have a major problem with um, their discipline. Um, when you know that a number of cases didn't even get to either regimental or or higher court martial, they still in the one year had 124 court martials. That is huge. Wow. That's Absolutely surprisingly huge. high. It is exceptionally high. Uh, in fact, it's mentioned by General Adam at Paris. I mean, he actually only knew of 90 at that stage, and he thought that was terrible. Um, so there clearly is an underlying problem. And potentially that's because, as you say, as I said before, half of the uh, men in the battalion weren't the men who were in Spain. Yeah, that's that. I mean, Adam's quite right. 90 is incredibly high. Um, that's the kind of thing that you'd normally only um, expect from battalions that I'd call the usual suspects. The 13th Regiment is one that usually has a lot of court-martials. But the 52nd isn't one that I'd associate with um, a, a whole batch of court-martials like that. You're absolutely right in, in what you say about what, what I could term this a pragmatic system of discretionary justice, which is mm -hmm. in, in kind of less 
fancy speak is kind of a live and let live attitude. And it's motivated by a few things in part. It's the fact that you need to command these men. And that if you're going to flog them constantly, you're going to destroy their morale. They're going to hate you. And so when you really need them to toe the line in the midst of a battle, then, well, good luck with getting them to comply because, you know, they hate your guts. And in some respects, they might even be inclined to um, do the, the job of the French for you and, and kill you um, so they don't have to put up with your relentless flogging. So there's a fear element in there. There's a, a morale element in there. There's also um, where the pragmatism really comes in is, as you say, when the commissariat breaks down, these guys need food. And so you start to allow them to plunder for food and then it becomes a very slippery slope because where do you draw the line? Somebody who's ransacking a house looking for a loaf of bread might stumble across a handful of coins. Well, they're not going to leave the handful of coins there. They're going to take them with them. And so once you start one thing, it becomes a kind of a self-perpetuating thing. But that attitude even goes to the top. It was interesting that you mentioned Adam because I've come across sources that explicitly say that Adam allowed... Um, a couple of units to plunder farmhouses the on the morning of the 18th because they'd stood to um, as a, a rear guard throughout the night of the 17th. So there is this kind of attitude of plunder as reward as well. And, and the army is really struggling to get its head around it. Yeah, I, I agree with you fully. I mean, everything you said is exactly what I found. I was just, as you said, very surprised that the 52nd had such a poor disciplinary record during this period. Um, the only other thing I was going to say to you, and one incident I would say that actually brought some uh, criticism of Colborne in the actual regiment itself at this time, although it's not mentioned by many uh, for obvious reasons, is four men actually went missing during the actual battle. Um, they ended up having a regimental court-martial uh, and were um, told they were going to have 300 lashes each. But Colborne eventually turned around and actually got rid of that. The sergeant was amongst them, actually lost his stripes. Um, but other than that, uh, Colborne's view was, uh, you're not going to get a Waterloo medal, and that's your shame, and that's your punishment. And that's how it was left. Um, funny enough, on this occasion, I'm not sure his soldiers actually agreed that that was acceptable. That's funny, um, because the pardoning thing, doesn't surprise me. I mean, if you were an NCO and you were tried and found guilty, you'd lose your stripes. And quite often the sentence would be reduction to the ranks plus a flogging punishment, say a hundred lashes. And yep. the the reduction of rank would be deemed enough. And so the flogging would be um, remitted. But that's interesting that they uh, felt that the the removal of the Waterloo Medal was, was going too far. Because there's this thing of honour, and it goes back to what Ed Koss has written about kind of cohesion with the unit and primary group theory, and this idea that what holds an army together is the fact that these men will stand and fight for each other. So if you're going to naff off in the middle of a battle, that is clearly an indication that you aren't interested in looking after your peers, you're interested in looking after number one, which would then lead you to be ostracised from many within the unit because you didn't do the honourable thing, you didn't do your bit. So that's really curious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing is slightly curious about it is that two of them were corporals and they didn't lose their stripes. Wow. So it was only the sergeant that had the, uh, the ultimate problem. 
I suppose the proceedings don't survive, do they, by any chance? Unfortunately, because it's a regimental one, I've not found them yet. Yeah, uh, and cool. I've been to every museum I can think of regarding it. If somebody knows where they are, please tell me. Uh, but yeah, I've not absolutely. found them. Um, yeah, uh, for people who aren't familiar, regimental court-martial is the lowest tier of the military courts, and um, the proceedings are, are like gold dust. You very, very rarely get them um, reproduced, and if they are reproduced in any form, it's usually because they are used as evidence in trials at a higher level. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's fascinating. Thank I'm glad I asked you that now. <laughs> One of the things that I really like about the book on the 52nd Eyewitness Accounts is that you continue to track their story after Waterloo into 1818, which mm -hmm. for people's reference is the period of the Army of Occupation. So tell people a little bit about this unit's story beyond Waterloo. Uh, well, the first thing is, and the most important one, is that um, Adam's Brigade, and I should say that rather than just the 52nd, were the only uh, infantry unit that actually marched into Paris with Wellington. That was a high honour, and in fact, that in some ways probably was Wellington actually recognising their part in everything else that's gone on. I mean, in normal circumstances, it would have been the guards that were in, with, in Paris with him, but on this occasion, it's not. It wasn't the 52nd that led it. Uh, Wellington insisted that the brigade went in in the order they always marched, which meant the 2nd second, second 95th went first uh, in their sort of um, position of honour. Um, but as I said, all, the brigade was, was put into that position and in fact they formed the guard for Wellington's headquarters in Paris for the time they were there. So as I said, that was seen as very much an honour. They then stayed in Paris right the way through till November before they moved outside to Versailles and then moved up to the uh, Pas-de-Calais Pas in December where they remained throughout the three years really with not much happening because it was, it was largely boring garrison type, type work etc. Uh, however, when the British Army finally leaves in 1818, um, the 52nd are actually the final regiment to leave uh, French soil at the end of the at the end of the war. Uh, so that's their period afterwards. Wow! So the last one's out. Do they have kind of repeats of this issue of people kind of having had their their service expired? Do you find more instances of people? Um, trying any tactic they can to get out. I mean, I'm very struck that at the end of the Peninsula War, the point when desertions really rocket is when the battalions are being transported home and um, suddenly there's this opportunity to get away with the, the senorita that they've um, shacked up with over the course of the conflict. And so you, you see a real spike in desertions um, at, at the end of the conflict. Is there a kind of an equivalent either in the wake of the Waterloo campaign when things calmed down or in 1818 when the, the army's redeploying? The, um, the, the, the fact that you saw in 1814 was obviously quite a major one because obviously then many of them have actually had a wife of some form, if you want to call her a wife, um, marching around with them for many a year. Uh, and they obviously were not prepared to leave their wives behind as because the army weren't going to ship them back to the UK unless they were officially married which was obviously a rarity in those days because you had to have officers permission to do it. Um, in 1815, oh, I should say 1818, you don't get the same effect 
on their return to the UK. I think most of them were probably very keen to go back to UK and not so many had uh, made obvious liaisons with the, with the French public or if they had, there doesn't seem to have been a problem with them not coming back with them. I guess it was probably a little bit easier when you're just going across the channel. Um, so that isn't the issue. Uh, one of the strange issues that does come out is there is very clear evidence uh, and something that actually I read in uh, Ensign Charles Shaw's account of, of this period, he's in the 52nd, he actually makes a claim that Colborne was not particularly good at being in charge of discipline in the, in the regiment and that Rowan, his deputy, was actually much better. Uh, and I did do some work on that and actually did, it does bear out that Colborne's um, view of allowing um, the punishment to be waived uh, with maybe just a sort of a short period in, in, in sort of um, barracks or in, a, in the black hole or whatever instead, instead of actually the lash. Whereas Rowan apparently believed that when he was in charge and Colborne was away, uh, that if you actually gave the first two or three soldiers the full 300 lashes they were actually uh, committed to get, then the numbers of actual cases would drop uh, in total. Now, it's, it's interesting to know that the evidence does back that up completely. And that during Rowan's periods, the number of actual cases where um, we they had to go to a full court martial uh, and for diversion, desertion, et cetera, was much, much lower. And it always went up when Colborne was there. That's very interesting. That's quite a surprise, actually, because the conceived wisdom is that, you know, you flog when you really need to. Um, and if you're going to flog, quite often you will step in and reduce part of the punishment as a kind of a gesture of goodwill, unless you've got a really bad, um, what they would call a bad character, somebody who's repeatedly doing these kinds of things. Yes. So do they end up kicking more cases upstairs to general court-martial, do you know, as they're doing this? Uh, not so, not so much. No, um, they tend to try to keep them within the regiment, um, but the it was more the fact of obviously having got this sort of punishment awarded to them, uh, the fact that he would commute them more often. As I said, um, that he would actually either only give fifty lashes or not no lashes at all or something like that. Um, and as I said, because of that, it seems to have had the, the effect of the soldiers thinking, well he won't give me the full amount, I'll get away with it. Um, and, it, and as I said, you know, it was only on the back of Charles Shaw's claims that you can actually see that there are specific periods at around the period of Waterloo and then in the last six months in 1818, where Colborne is in charge, where there's other times he's not there, and Rowan's uh, results are much lower in regard to the number of actual cases he has to actually try. That's fascinating. Well, if people aren't uh, keen to buy your book now after hearing that little revelation, I honestly don't know how <laughs> on top of covering all of this controversy and conspiracy theories, they are resisting the urge to buy it. One last question from me. Was there anything that really surprised you doing all of this? Well, just apart from that one there, um, the, the biggest surprise for me as well was the 
Prussian involvement. Now, I was reading a number of the accounts, obviously written many years after the battle, and if you imagine the final sort of attack, the, the 52nd and obviously Adams Brigade and cavalry and everything else, charge up to the area of um, the Belle Alliance and push the French back down the road away. Um, the 52nd get involved in ca ca capturing some uh, artillery, etc. But they, they then keep moving on until they get close to the farm of Rossom and they then halt there for the night. Okay. Um, now, when that happens, they have only seen on the road up odd groups of Prussian skirmishes, etc. No formed troops on that movement up. There's no, they haven't got in the way because that would be a problem otherwise with the two armies, you know, colliding at the same time. So clearly, the Prussians haven't arrived at that at that point at the Belle Alliance or anywhere just south of that. That's uh, all. And um, what I do find interesting though is that when they arrive at Maison Drouard. Leak and people like that say, well, we arrived at about quarter past nine and we didn't see any Prussians arrive. Now, at Maison du Roi, which is just, just south of um, Rossom, you have the main road that comes from the village of Plonsonois. It would be the ideal route for the Prussians to advance on. They wouldn't have uh, moved towards La Belle Alliance from Plonsonois if they're chasing the French off the field they would take the road that comes out of Maison de Roi. And obviously the 52nd are there and they actually then see the Prussians arrive. And they make it quite clear, Leek says it's, they arrived half an hour after we arrived at Rossom, which is around about a quarter to 10. My big surprise was when I then found Holman's contemporary diary because I thought, well, maybe Leek is again trying to make the 52nd more important than anybody else. Holman's diary says we didn't see the formed Prussians until a quarter to 10. Now that has some degree of question over what had happened at Plonsonois that although the French front had collapsed by somewhere just before nine o'clock, and by nine o'clock, the, um, the, the British cavalry and the 52nd, etc., were passing La Belle Alliance and then mo moving south. There is no formed Prussians around. Uh, and it's actually nearly three quarters of an hour later before formed Prussians arrive on the road at Maison de Roi, not further up at La Belle Alliance. And I find that interesting and maybe says to me that the fighting in Plonsonart was not completely over until. Uh, the British attack had broken their centre and that possibly the Prussians even took time to reform themselves as they came out of the village before they started marching, which would actually probably make some sense as well. Uh, but it, it has some interesting connotations and I'll probably not say any more on that subject at the moment because I'll probably have some people on the Prussian side screaming at this, uh, this sort of situation already. But there's a book in there. There's there's more research to be done, surely. As you say, that is that's very surprising. Uh, but it also makes a degree of sense, doesn't it? That you know, particularly considering how vicious the the fighting was in Plancenoit, as it was across the the battle, but particularly bad in Plancenoit. Yeah. They and you've got street fighting. You know, units get broken up. It's going to take them time to reform. That would 
actually, when you think about it operationally, make a lot of sense. You know, you take the time to, to gather your men together and then send them off. Absolutely. And if you look at a, a good map of uh, the battlefield, as I said, the road coming out at Maison de Loire makes perfect sense as the way they would have gone rather than actually towards La Belle Alliance. The only troops that would have come that way are the ones that had come through um, sort of La Haye and all the rest of it on that side of the, uh, and come along the French front, basically. Um, so it's I find it very interesting. I, I, it's It chimes with my understanding of the battle and I do I do believe it but clearly it needs a lot more investigation it does well I look forward to uh talking to you about that more in the future Gareth this has been absolutely brilliant um but then I knew it would be um tell people a little bit about how they can find out more about you and also crucially where they can get these two great books from uh well if you ever want to know uh, what I've published, etc., and what I'm up to. I do keep my own website at um, GarethGloverCollection.com, um, and you can actually find out, as I say, literally what I'm up to at that stage. Obviously, regarding uh, books, uh, the Great Controversy book is out from uh, Pen and Sword, uh, and can be a, is available from all good booksellers, um, and obviously some major internet. Providers of books. I'll say no more than that. Um, however, the memoirs part of the book, which includes Holman's diary, which has never been published before, and others that I've discovered, um, is only available through Ken Trotman Publishing, uh, which you can find easy enough on the website. But he actually only produces the books and sells through himself effectively. Um, so you 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 can find it very easily through him as well. Gareth, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on. Thanks very much for joining me. Much welcome. That was Gareth Glover joining me to discuss his recent publications, 52nd Light Infantry, Eyewitness Accounts of the Waterloo Campaign, and The Great Waterloo Controversy, the story of the 52nd foot at history's greatest battle. And as you've just heard, Gareth's books, including all of his previous publications, are available to order online now. As always, please take the time to like, share and retweet about this podcast if you're enjoying the Napoleon Assist and to leave a review on your preferred podcasting platform. You can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory and please do join the conversation which is always open at the NapoleonicWars.net. Until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.